Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with repeat guest and fan favorite, Sheil Manat, uh, network leader at Village Global, and, and Jake Gibson. Uh, Sheil and Jake, you guys are teaming up to start a fund together in the fintech space. You guys have been angel investing for a long time. Sheil, why don't you give a brief background of, of how, you know, uh, how you guys know each other, and then you can introduce Jake. Yeah, sure. So um, Jake and I met when I was running my first cohort at 500 Startups, uh, the fintech fund. And um, I saw... First of all, NerdWallet was like in our building at, at 500 Startups. So I was excited to, uh, you know, this iconic fintech company was there. And through a friend, I got connected to Jake, uh, who was at that point an active angel investor in fintech. And I asked him to come in and mentor some of our companies. He came in and was the highest rated mentor and ended up investing in some of the companies. And since then, that was like three and a half years ago. Since then, we've been super tight looking at a bunch of deals together. Uh, and Jake has a super interesting story about NerdWallet. So why don't you talk, talk about yourself? <laughs> yeah. Uh, NerdWallet's kind of an interesting beast and not, not your typical Silicon Valley company. But uh, both my co-founder and I, you know, we've known each other since eighth grade. We grew up in Atlanta wow. together. Um, he was smart enough to go to Stanford. I went to MIT, uh, which was Stanford, but a lot colder. Uh, and then we both ended up on Wall Street. He was working in the hedge fund world, doing kind of equity research stuff. Worked at a, uh, a few different hedge funds. I was at J.P. Morgan doing prop trading in the interest rate derivative space. But then uh, we both uh, effectively got blown out of Wall Street at the same time, around the end of 2008. Uh, I managed to hang on and stick around for one more year. He just decided it wasn't even worth it and took the year off and kind of traveling around and, and working on what he was going to do next. And ultimately, the idea that he landed on was was NerdWallet. I mean, he just saw this opportunity to where you had like bank rate and credit cards.com and all this other stuff in the space, uh, advertising financial products, but doing so in a way that just were not very consumer friendly. We, we joked that it was effectively just NASCAR. Uh, every page is just every pixel on every page was just a paid advertisement of some sort. If you went to like credit cards.com and looked at their highest rewards credit card and you'd have, you know, some Amex or maybe like a chase car at the top, then you'd go to their, lower interest rate credit card page, which is presumably for people that have a bunch of debt and have to carry it month over month, you'd have the exact same card up there and it'd be a 29% APR or something. It didn't make any sense. And so in a world where, you know, we, we were all on mobile now, like we're getting used to customization and transparency and all these things like, you know, the kayaks of the world were only a few years old at that point. And so we decided like, why isn't there a kind of kayak like experience for financial products? Why is nobody, trying to do what's actually best for the end consumer rather than just trying to monetize them via, via, via advertisements. And so uh, I ended up stepping down about a, uh, you know, a year after you know, early, call it early 2010 and uh, starting to work with, starting to work with Tim on, on what would eventually become NerdWallet. It was pretty interesting for the first couple of years. It was really just kind of me and Tim working out of a closet in Redwood city effectively. And we started in New York and then eventually migrated out this way. We got we had basically no traction for a good two years there. We weren't paying ourselves because we weren't making any money. We never raised any outside capital because we didn't think anybody would give us any money anyway. Uh, the business model didn't seem particularly venture fundable. And then who the hell were we? Like we were just two dudes that 
got blown out of Wall Street, decided to move to California. We ended up have this thesis that if you just create quality content, Google will find you. And if we just do the right thing by the end consumer, then we'll be able to build a brand that will eventually uh, kind of outpace bank rate and credit cards.com and whatnot. And so we just sat there and tried to execute on that. And nobody cared for a couple of years there. And then one day, mid to late 2011, Google just overnight changed all their algorithms and suddenly NerdWallet was on the map. And uh, we've, we've been growing pretty steadily ever since then. If you build quality content, Google will find you. I like that. I can't promise you that that business model <laughs> yeah. works today. I don't, know if, I don't know if that still works. If you build quality content, Google will copy you. Yeah, Google will put themselves above you. Above you. Yeah. yeah. First, I just want to say that no one from my eighth grade is doing shit with their lives. So, <laughs> come on, Herschel. So, so good for you. Okay, so let, let's get into your guys' thesis. Sure. What are you excited to invest in what do you believe? Was- I mean, I, I think the thing we're most excited about right now is so over the past several years, Jake and I have been some of the most active investors in fintech. And one of the things we've seen is it's still really hard to start a fintech company. Yeah. A lot of companies end up raising a series A before they have any revenue, before they even launch. And it's because there are all these different things you need to do before you can even start. And we're really excited to invest in companies that make it easier to start other fintech companies. Mm-hmm. And when I say other fintech companies, it doesn't have to be like another neobank. It could be a company that is doing some other thing, uh, a vertical SaaS company, a marketplace that can embed fintech into it. So that's, I think that's one thing that we think there's a lot of legs on. And there are a lot of companies out there, software companies, that have some distribution advantage, some data advantage that can become fintech companies in the future. And like what are some of, some of the examples that we've looked at recently? So, yeah, I mean, we actually like, it's funny. Every day we meet some other company that you would not think of as a fintech company, but they are like, they, they come to us as fintech investors because they want to be a fintech company. The last couple, I mean, you can talk about, I guess we also just met with a mattress company. Wow. Last week. A fintech company. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, lending is big in the mattress space, right? Wow. Like, uh, I think a firm actually kind of got their start because of Casper. Because, you know, there's a lot of online e-commerce stuff where the tickets just aren't big enough for lending to really matter. But mattresses just happens to be a unique category where it's it's not something you have to buy that often, but it's generally a pretty large purchase. And so kind of lending built right there into the payments and purchase flow uh, makes a big difference. And so, you know, one example could have been like if, if Casper, rather than using a firm, had just decided to kind of build some of that payments infrastructure themselves and start to do some of the lending themselves much like you know any e-commerce company eventually kind of any large enough e-commerce company eventually gets into lending we we were talking to a company recently that's kind of thinking along those lines an example like in our existing portfolio is i invested in the seed round of flexport and flexport is a uh, freight forwarder customer logistics company when i invested fintech wasn't necessarily like top of mind for the company um, but a couple of years later they actually had uh, they had me come in and talk about how they could build Flexport Capital, which is this awesome fintech company, effectively. They have everything they need to be a lender. They have distribution, like they have all these customers. They have great data. They can see repeatedly, this company works with this supplier in China. They constantly pay them on a regular schedule, take the shipments, et cetera. And they have collections. They're physically holding inventory. So like distribution, collections, and underwriting 
plus capital markets are the things you need to be a lender. And they have all those things. And the interesting thing there is like logistics business that Flexport's building out of the gate or was building out of the gates. Uh, I mean, that's a big market, but trade finance and supply chain finance is like a $5 trillion market. So uh, I think a lot of these software companies are going to start to realize that the market sizes and financial services are so much larger than what they were originally looking at for their software business and kind of leveraging that by going into kind of different verticals of that financial services space. And yeah. so this is your thesis. Everything's a bin deck company. Yeah. Literally our, our pitch deck, the first slide just says everything is fintech. And so what's not fintech? like, what are the things that say, Hey, we could turn into a fintech company. You're like, yeah, you probably can't like, or what, what are, um, what's the scope? I, there? I think they're probably just, there's some things that are probably too far afield. What's new in 2019 or 2020 that everything's been that company? I mean, it wasn't true maybe five years ago. I'm, I'm, you guys have been doing this a decade. But like, what? How has the ecosystem evolved? Or in your investing thesis appropriately? So there are a few things. There's like a like the larger players. So all these all these fintech startups said like you know we're upending the banks. Inevitably, they actually need to partner with the banks mm-hmm. or or insurance companies. And both the banks and insurance companies have become a lot more open to partnerships, particularly the smaller banks. The smaller banks are realizing you need to be everything to everyone in this small area that you're focusing in. And like these larger banks are eating your lunch. So the way to win is partnering with fintech startups, either by being the back end for them or actually like your front end, you can actually plug in fintechs to like do some of the stuff that you you were traditionally doing. So the banks are much more willing to partner partner with these companies. And then all these other companies exist that make it easier. So like you used to have to figure out your own KYC solution, your own fraud solution, your own like core system, all these things that now there are APIs that make it easier for. And the funny thing is, this is it's not really a new story. Like uh, there have been businesses historically, a lot of what we know about traditional kind of incumbent financial services did not start that way. Like Wells Fargo did not start out as a bank. Wells Fargo was effectively a messaging company at the beginning that then got into transmitting money and then got into being a bank. You know, Sears launched a number of finance brands over the years out of their giant uh, e-commerce or not even e-commerce business, eventually like mail commerce, not even e-commerce. It's funny because people talk about Amazon and like this, the moves they're making in financial services, but actually like Sears did all this stuff before Sears launched Allstate, the insurance company. Uh, they own Dean Witter, the brokerage. They launched Discover the Card. Like they've just by being, by being large, by having a distribution network in one area, you can add financial services. And that's been the case through the years. Why has it been true that these companies have to, couldn't disrupt the banks and have to partner with banks? Partially, partially a regulatory issue. In the United States, it's like it's really hard to get a new bank charter. Yeah, and you can't you can't hold deposits and transmit money and stuff like that without a without a bank charter. And, and even if you got a bank charter, like you might not want one because it restricts you on a bunch of other things you you can't do, like own parts of another company, things like that. Yeah. So typically, things like this have only really been available to companies of large scales. So we talked about Sears and Wells Fargo and stuff, and. Um, Amazon and Uber just announced that they're rolling out Uber money. I mean, how, how old is Uber now and how big are they? It's taken them, uh, they had to basically get, get to that scale in order to do what they're doing now. Whereas nowadays there's infrastructure, 
there there are startups out there that will help other startups do effectively what Uber's doing yeah. much faster and much cheaper. Yeah. What are categories that you were excited about earlier this decade or mid this decade that now less excited about? I think generic payments. So like Square and Stripe yeah. are executing very well. And like somebody coming up against one of them, I think is going to have a tough time. Yeah. Now there are still opportunities for payments within specific areas like rental payments or, or like insurance payment. Like there are a bunch of different vertical areas that make sense, but yeah, like medical payments, medical yeah. payments, et cetera. But um, like if you're, if you're starting a new merchant processor generic, I think there's probably a lot less interest yeah. on my end than, than there used to be. I would say the same thing about uh, like a lot of consumer insurance plays, like things that are just kind of effectively copies of old school business models. Actually, maybe we'd apply this a little bit more broadly. Like basically any company that's building a traditional incumbent style business model, except with software, is probably less and less interesting now because a we've kind of already checked all those boxes. There's already big players in all of those spaces. Uh, there's a lot of competition even beyond just the bigger players. Cost of acquisition is extremely high. We've learned over the past decade that unit economics just don't typically work out for these types of fintech companies until they start to cross-sell. And nobody has really proven that they can expand into multiple business lines and really cover their cost of acquisition effectively um, in the startup space. Like when you're competing against somebody who is earning net interest margin on deposits, it's just hard to get to a scale where you can actually achieve positive unit economics. So... Um, we were seeing it play out with the neo banks. Uh, we saw it play out in personal lending. We saw it play out with the robo advisors. I think a lot of you know, kind of auto insurance and homeowners insurance and stuff like that is probably going to go the same way. Where the biggest players in the space are probably already chosen, and unless you have a fundamentally different model, uh, it's going to be much harder to, to catch on. And then uh, I think unsecured consumer lending, we're just like not that interested in. It hasn't. Uh... You need to have some sort of advantage. What's an example of companies? In unsecured consumer lending. Lending club. Yeah. In On the business side, there's like Bond Street. A lot of these companies, if you don't have some distribution advantage, then you're fighting against other folks. Like your CAC game yeah. is just gets too expensive. What are some distribution advantages that, that work? Yeah, sure. So if you're, again, it's like if you're selling some other product yeah. and you happen and then like ancillarily you're adding lending. So there's a company called WiseTac that uh, helps third parties sell loans effectively. So like if you if you are getting a new kitchen, you have a contractor come to your house, yeah. it's like it's going to cost you $20,000. Right now, you have to like go to another place to get a loan for that. Like you might go to a bank, try to get a home equity line of credit. There aren't that many of those available these days. It's like, a, it's kind of weird. Like when you go buy a car, most car places also do financing. Yeah. But when you buy a similar size purchase for your home, there's no one that, like, you can't do it right there. So WiseTac is enabling these guys to give you a loan at that point. Yeah. So that's a distribution advantage, I would say. You're selling something else. I want to go through a few categories and have you briefly talk about some combination of either how it's evolved uh, over time, uh, how sort of the unique opportunities or unique challenges of, of building a company or investing in that space. So maybe first start with, Peer-to-peer lending. I Start with peer the name peer-to-peer lending. Peer-to-peer lending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, they saw kind of an arbitrage opportunity early on with just the fact that banks had pulled back so much in the financial crisis. And 
decided that they could get cheaper rates. Like people were looking for a yield and uh, other people were looking for cheaper rates. And so you could do that by facilitating loans between people, but turned out that that wasn't particularly scalable. And so all that ended up happening was a bunch of larger institutions and alternative investors started pulling into the into the platforms and providing all of the financing. And so it just became a shadow bank. It wasn't peer-to-peer lending, really. Yeah, I think when it started out, it was actually peer-to-peer. Like when Lending Club started, it was actually like people like me making loans to individuals. Over time, it became like 90% institutions. And it's just basically algorithms that are... It's not like it's not like human to human anymore. Uh, so I think now the term is like marketplace lending because peer to peer, it's not really peer to peer. But yeah, to Jake's point, at the end of the day, like if you're a lending club, your cost of capital is still higher than the banks. And when the banks like Goldman has launched Marcus and like they're kind of competing in the same space as lending club, it becomes challenging. Yeah. So you're just. Or are you just dubious on lending right now, but lending more broadly. The the other the other reason is like kind of cyclical. Like we've been in a great economic position for for a decade, but um, and so we're likely to have some some. Yeah, yeah I think there's still opportunities where you can secure the loan somehow, yeah. or maybe there there are opportunities to actually do more effective underwriting. But it's not going to be by plugging into Plaid and getting data that everybody has access to. Yeah. It's going to be by building some other type of platform where you're getting kind of unique data. Yeah. Um, what do you think of these sort of Tala, Branch, some of these companies are trying to do innovative credits more? Yeah, so I think internationally there's tons of opportunities still. The Here we have rules around what data you're allowed to use yeah. to underwrite against. If you could build a machine learning model against everything about you in your phone, like there's a lot that I could do, but that model might be racist, might have all sorts of other issues. Yeah. And so that you can't use it in America, but in emerging markets, it's kind of wide open. So there's great opportunities for, for talent branch. Yeah. And I think in general, like in general, it's a great opportunity because these markets that they're in Africa, LATAM, Southeast Asia are so underserved by traditional banking. Um, the technology just makes it a lot easier. Like 15 years ago, I myself was working in microfinance in India. I was literally like taking a bus and then riding on the back of somebody's motorcycle to service like one borrower. Yeah. And now all of that you can do through the phone. You don't need to do that. And I was like every week going to a borrower's house to collect money. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We were talking to a company that was trying to lend against sort of food purchases and we felt a little weird. Uh, tell me more about that. Running um, against food purchases? Like uh, them go instead of buying a mattress like it would for a firm, it's them buying going to the supermarket. Is this what LendUp was doing a little bit? LendUp is a... They're just a, a regular lender. Sasha's company. Sasha's company, yeah. yeah. Uh, formerly Sasha's company. What they do that's interesting is they give you like a small loan. The reason it's called LendUp yeah. is like they give you a small loan, you pay it back, and then they give you a bigger loan and a bigger loan. It's a challenging market, though. It's just yeah. high interest rates, right. and high interest rates by themselves aren't necessarily a problem. Like, like, I, like the example I gave in India. Like, I was getting on a bus and then on a motorcycle to service one borrower. Like, yeah. just, there's just high cost for that. If it's a two hundred dollar loan, right. like me going there every week is just costing a lot of money. So, I think high interest rates by themselves aren't necessarily bad, but 
a lot of regulating bodies have problems with that. And then actually Google does too. So yeah. Google, like you can't place ads on Google if you have above a 36% APR, huh. um, which eliminates a bunch of folks. Right. And so help me think through this. So we have a company right now that's, it's Adi, it's uh, a firm yeah. for Latin America. How should we think about sort of the, you know, X for Latin America, like a firm for Latin America or plaid for Europe or, you know, X for Y and different, like what's going to determine whether it's the new companies that win or just plaid is going to win in these different regions. How should we think about in fintech? Is it harder for, you know, one company to have geo um, reach because of different regulations or relative to? Yeah. I mean, very few, very few fintech companies scale globally quickly. Like some of the payments companies have IDN Stripe has more recently, but otherwise it's really hard. And so I think there are a lot more opportunities for X or Y regionally, but ways to think about like whether they'll be successful are like if it's a firm for LADAM and you know, what, what does a firm need? A firm needs like a robust e-commerce market. So if it's a firm for another market that doesn't have a robust e-commerce market, then it's probably less interesting. Right. And what about new bank or these are neo banks in different, different regions? See, I think that, that kind of touches on one of the things I was going to add to that last question is a lot of the companies that start in America and want to think about expanding internationally, there's always the trade-off of whether or not it's worth it because you're already active in the biggest market in the world and you don't have that much market share in the grand scheme of things. So uh, there's generally a trade-off of like how much of our resources are we to trade towards continue to expand market share in America versus expanding internationally. And so similarly to Nubank and Revolut and stuff like that, they all have their eyes on coming to America <laughs> because it's such a larger market. They're, they feel like, you know, it's a tr- traditional kind of Silicon Valley story. If I can just get 1% of that market, then huge. Uh, but what that means is we basically have a bunch of effectively copycat products that are all going to be launching in the same country alongside all of the neobanks that we've talked to in the last couple of years that are planning on launching sometime this year and next year, or I should say next year at this point, the competitive landscape is going to, it's going to heat up pretty substantially. Yeah. What's even the bull case for someone like, like how is Nubank going to come to the U S and outcompete you know, the U S versions of them? I don't get it. I think there's going to be a lot of competing VC dollars yeah. burn through uh, on customer acquisition, and it's uh, the value is occurring to Facebook, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Buy Facebook and Google stock. Yeah. What about PFMs? Yeah. So um, PFMs are personal finance managers, and sort of the most famous early one is Mint. Started about 15 years ago. Got acquired by Intuit for like 170 million bucks. A lot. There's so many of them. Yeah, like, I shared with you one the other day. Yeah. Um, you're dubious on. I'm dubious on on them in general. Uh, just a lot of people. So PFMs make it easier to manage your money, but people don't want to manage their money. Like a very small percentage of people actually want to actively manage their money. People don't want to think about their money, and like you have to make their lives easier by not thinking about money. So what ends up happening for all these PFMs is. They launch, they get like 100,000 customers, a couple hundred thousand customers, and then it stalls out and they're all free. Like they, they don't pay anything. So all these companies have had challenges. Yeah. There are companies that have started with PFM and then grown beyond it. Empower started with PFM, added banking. Albert started with PFM, added like text message based financial advice. These companies have, have done well. Um, I think overall, like 
the the last question, neobanks, and this question, PFMs, all of consumer fintech is starting to look very similar yeah. in that we started out with the unbundling of the bank. So instead of, you know, instead of everything at, at your bank, you're getting lending from some app, saving from some app and investing from some app and maybe insurance from another app. Um, and now all these apps, once they've acquired you as a customer, they need to cross sell you into these other things. So just like the banks, just like the banks. So weird how that happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Albert, Bridget, Digit, Wealthfront, Betterment, Stash, Acorns, all are have some components of lending, savings, investments, and they're all starting to encroach on each other's turf. Again, so does is, that mean do they all become commodities, or is there any moat there? The, I think I think there's a lot of that. I mean, they're. Well, I should say the story on has not fully been written there. So yeah. may, maybe they build a brand and that becomes the moat. Or maybe one of them eventually, or maybe some of them figure out a feature set that creates network effects or some other sort of defensibility. But for the most part, most of these products don't have much of a technical defensibility. Like they're not particularly complicated products. And thanks to infrastructure that's out there right now, like Plaid and Synapse Fi and things of that nature... A lot of these companies are just, I mean, it's a React front end on top of somebody else's infrastructure. And the other, and the infrastructure providers have actually done the harder work yeah. of integrating down the stack um, and building the actual technology behind your product. And you effectively just kind of become a distribution engine for somebody else's balance sheet. And yeah. so I think a lot of stuff is going to become commoditized. I think a lot of what's happened in consumer fintech over the last 10 years has already been largely commoditized. I think that financial inst- financial products in general have been a commodity for a long time yeah. in America, at least where we're all pretty well served. And so it was nice to get all these new front ends and everything that came about in the last 10 years as tech moved more and more into FinTech. But, uh, I do believe that we're just kind of continuing to commoditize these same products. I think that like the way to win is again, like making it so easy for the user. So what I'm looking for is something that truly automates my finances and maybe not my, my finance is probably too complicated, but like, a fresh college graduate, like you have student debt, you have credit cards, like you're, you've got a new job, you have a 401k, like what do you do with all these things? Like a lot of people think financial education is the answer. I actually don't. I think that like we've tried financial education like for a long time and people don't necessarily get educated. The answer is technology just doing it for you. And if you can, if you can build something that people trust and do take actions for them. I think that's the holy grail. Yeah. Yeah. I I like to compare it to like personal fitness and health, right? Like nobody doesn't know that broccoli is good for you and like cupcakes are bad for you, (laughs) but no matter how much of that education there, you know, I'm doing the scare quotes out there. Um, I'm still going to eat a cupcake every now and then I'm still not really going to love eating my broccoli. And so money is the same thing. Like it, it sucks to have to not buy that thing that you want today and wait until later. But so when there's kind of free money laying around, you know, people tend to make, uh, make the shorter term decisions. It's just how we're wired. And what about all these sort of vertical banks and cards? So like Mercury and bank for bank for startups and, you know, Brex for card for startups, but also, um, uh, you know, things like step for, for kit, like are any of these companies interesting or are they sort of basically become commodities as well? I think these can be interesting. I think there's enough big enough market that has not been served well in those categories that there's an opportunity. Like clearly what Mercury and Brex are doing, you know, on the banking side, like 
they're effectively taking on SVB and there are services that people really want that these guys offer like an API for payments. It makes it really easy to pay. Like these sorts of things just are lacking for startups. And I think there's some opportunity there. I think the, the question for some of these companies like Brex is, you know, they have to go into that valuation that they've got. And I think that that's a question mark whether they get there on step, you know, there's a bet that you want to attract users to your banking product as soon as possible. Yeah. And steps making a bet that like this Venmo like product, which has true network effects, which is yeah. kind of cool is the way to do it. I think it's a really interesting model. There are a few other competitors in that space. Right. It is interesting to think I tweeted this the other day, like what if Venmo was an independent company today or, or is there a company that could compete with what Venmo was trying to do or, or does? Yeah, I think um, what a lot of people miss on Venmo is Venmo is an accident, right? Like Venmo in in 2013, um, my company had been acquired by Groupon. I tried to acquire, we tried to acquire Venmo, and so I, so I, have a, I had a pretty good visibility into it. They were running out of money, and um, they ended up getting acquired for 26 million bucks by Braintree. But it was kind of an inside deal. Excel was an investor in Venmo and uh, a large owner of Braintree. And, uh, so they did kind of an inside deal. They mainly wanted the team. When PayPal acquired, uh, Braintree about a year later, they actually like didn't care about Venmo. They acquired it for Braintree. It was a billion dollar acquisition. Like people think that it had to do with Venmo. No, like Venmo was just acquired for $26 million. The billion dollar acquisition had nothing to do with Venmo. And PayPal, like the PayPal people that did the acquisition, I know them and they told me that. And then Venmo accidentally kind of grew and grew and grew. But, PayPal's put pretty substantial resources behind it. They have a, they put it, they like in 2016, 2017 did a big marketing campaign. Wow. They've been losing tons of money on it actually. And it's ultimately, if you grow out a consumer to consumer network, you can, there are different ways you can monetize. Like, so, so one way you can monetize is, uh, instead of getting paid in a few days, you get paid today, but you have to pay some fee for that. Uh, another way you can monetize is ultimately what the Holy Grail people like to see is you can charge people to pay merchants. So generally, consumer to consumer, you can't charge any money because like if I'm paying you, my friend, then like I don't want to pay some third party for it. But if I'm paying a merchant, that's already an established use case where, where I can pay. So I, I don't think we'll see necessarily new Venmos in the US. Obviously, Square Cash has done really well. I think Square Cash is probably bigger than Venmo. It's a different demographic, actually, if you look like... In the Southeast, Square Cash is really popular. There was a Wall Street Journal article a couple months ago that was really fun. It was like Square Cash references in uh, rap songs. And uh, the Cash app gets gets referenced in rap songs a lot. I don't know if you saw that, Eric. Yeah, yeah. I thought you might enjoy it. But uh, what's interesting is in uh, other parts of the world, uh, there's a, actually a wide open opportunity. So... Um, and it may not start with something that looks like a payments app. So obviously in China, WeChat has been a payments behemoth uh, with WeChat Pay. WeChat started out as an app effectively looking like WhatsApp and has morphed into all these other things. It's like kind of a mini ecosystem within an app and payments is a huge component of it. In So, so in Asia or in, in China, it looks like that. In Southeast Asia, it might look a little bit different, like um, Grab and Gojek, which are these like Uber apps, uh, Uber type apps, ride hailing apps, actually are also becoming these like micro ecosystems, like a super app with other other. I think Rappi is trying to do that too in Latin America. Yeah, exactly. Um, in 
in Africa, we invested in a company called Chipper Cash. Uh, so they are a, they started out as a cross border payments app. So allowing you like the, the founders are from like Uganda and, and Rwanda and, or Uganda and Ghana. And, um, you could pay each other across border, but actually what they realized is even within the borders of one country, like if you have a different mobile provider than somebody else, there's no Venmo. So you need like other than Kenya, which has, which 85% of the population uses Safaricom and Pesa in every other market in Africa, it's like, pretty split up. And so um, you might need to pay your family member. And if you're not on the same mobile network, you can't do that. So a lot of people are using Chipper Cash as a wallet and they monetize on the spread um, on cross-border payments. And then in the app, you can top up uh, your mobile airtime. So they make money through that. Yeah. How about insurance right now? Where, where have you been histor- excited historically and where are you excited right now or where are the challenges? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we've both done a lot of stuff in insurance. And I think... Um, uh, especially compared to like banking where I actually think the larger banks are pretty sophisticated and are pretty technologically sophisticated uh, and spend a lot of money and, and large banks being chase. I mean, Goldman, look what they do with Marcus. Like if you can spend a billion and a half dollars to get a new banking product off the ground, um, and you're willing to do that, like, you know, so that, that creates a lot of competition in kind of the banking space and, uh, similarly, number of other spaces, the you know, what Schwab and Vanguard have done to kind of eat the lunch of, of startups uh, in that space is pretty interesting. Uh, but insurance doesn't seem to have that same effect. Like in insurance, it feels like the carriers are, I mean, if you, if you really step back and think about it, insurance is a business built on the status quo <laughs> and like, and not changing things. And it kind of feels like the carriers just aren't making any moves to, uh, to kind of head off the competition that's coming from Silicon Valley. Meanwhile, the reinsurers are saying, well, okay, screw the carriers. We're just going to do an end run around them, like really play up this MGA status and uh, get a bunch of tech companies to distribute our balance sheets for us. Um, so we've seen a lot of interesting stuff in, in, in insurance, just where, you know, the hippos and the lemonades were able to move more and more into uh, homeowners and renters insurance uh, with effectively no competition from the incumbents. Uh, like Root and ClearCover going after auto insurance uh, with nobody really stepping up there either. So I think we're going to see some really interesting stuff there. I, I used to joke that every time I ever had to interact with my insurance company, I would go invest in a competitor because the claims process, like even just changing your payment information, just the most basic, basic stuff. Like your website doesn't even work and you're my insurance carrier. It you know We just kind of see the startups move more and more into that space. Some areas where I think it's going to be more important or like more interesting going forward is, you know, like I said, the reinsurers have been pretty aggressive about distributing their balance sheets through startups, but nobody's really attacking the reinsurance piece of the stack itself. Like, how do you provide the capital for insurance carriers uh, in a way that's more efficient than the way it works now? So that's something I'm pretty interested in. Like, is there some way to bring down the cost of capital for reinsurance and stuff and spread the risk more evenly around the world, around the country, whatever, spread the risk more evenly between different reinsurance providers and kind of do like what we do in the, the cat bond space with insurance link securities, how there's like a secondary market for stuff like that, primarily huge like hurricane risk and fire risk and stuff. You want to explain cat bonds? Oh yeah, catastrophic risk bonds. It's basically uh, reinsurers kind of packaging up. It's like if, if you're a big home insurer and you have a big book in California and Florida and South Texas and stuff like that, then 
a lot of your highly correlated risk within your portfolio comes from catastrophic disasters. So fires, hurricanes, floods, things like that. And so what they do is they effectively like package up that risk separately and sell it to other investors. And so there's hedge funds, other reinsurers will buy it from you. It just gets packaged up like any other security, kind of like a mortgage-backed security or something like that. But it's very, it's a, it's a decently large market, but it's very bespoke because these are typically deals in the uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars at a time that have to trade hands and uh, usually kind of banks and brokers and stuff like that that are packaging these up and charging a huge fee for it. It's not super, it's pretty opaque and so on and so forth. So if you can find a way to kind of disrupt that and apply that same model of securitization of insurance risk to other types of insurance risk, uh, smaller insurance risks effectively, like how do you build a tech platform that can aggregate a bunch of uh, like life insurance or a bunch of auto insurance or a bunch of commercial insurance or something, package it all up, securitize it and sell it into the open market. I think you can build a much uh, more efficient uh, mechanism for providing balance sheet capital. I think we might've talked about this before, but uh, a lot of the historical insurance companies, their customer isn't actually you, the end consumer. Their customer is the broker or agent. So like state farm, all state nationwide, Liberty mutual, they don't sell direct to consumers. They sell through intermediaries, which are either captive to them, like State Farm. If you have a State Farm agent, they only sell State Farm, or they're a broker, which they sell multiple multiple parties insurance. There are a couple of companies that have gone direct in the past in our lifetimes, effectively, and you know their names are Geico and Progressive, and these new companies like Root and ClearCover and Auto are going direct to consumer. I think that just going direct by itself is a huge advantage. Yeah. Do you have sort of a request for startups in insurance or things that you're particularly looking for? Yeah, I think so the, um, you know, the reinsurance thing and the securitization thing, I think is interesting. Um, I've only seen, I mean, we are an investor in a company in that space, but if, any is, if anybody's working on different ways to do it or different ideas around that, I think that'd be interesting. The other thing I'd say is my dream just in general for the future is that I can just have a subscription life, right? You know, I can just you know, pay whatever dollar amount on a monthly basis and just not have to worry about anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, insurance, the way that it works now, you have your auto insurance, you have your homeowner's insurance, you have a renter's insurance, you have, you know, every time you rent a car, they ask you if you want insurance. It's like you have the warranty on your phone. You basically have all these different types of insurance. And even I, as somebody who spent as much time looking at insurance as I have, have no idea what I'm covered and what I'm not covered on. I'd have to go like pull out all these these giant PDFs and read through it to figure out. And then, what does comprehensive mean? What does collision mean? What does it cover? What does it not cover? What happens? Like what happens with the other motorists, so on and so forth. So like, I think you have all these different insurance products. None of us really understand any of them. And we're having to pay for a bunch of them out of pocket every month. And then even deciding in some cases, like whether or not we want them or not. What if I could just pay for like an umbrella policy that covered everything? I, I don't think we're really there yet. I don't know if I know some people that are working on things like this and I'm, I'm concerned that it's, it's just not really feasible yet. But if anybody figures that out, I think it's a, it'd be a really interesting idea. Like if anything in my house breaks, I just file a claim and it gets paid or anything happens to my car. I just, it just gets fixed. And I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Isn't this what Cover is trying to do? Kind of, but I, I think like, I think they're not there yet. Right. Um, 
I'd also like to see it just be easier to start these insurance companies. Like there are all these different things you need to, to do. You need to like get the regulatory paper. You need to get a reinsurance partner, yeah. all these other things. And like somebody who makes that process easier. Yeah. I think would have a great opportunity yeah. and it, it wouldn't have to be just starting new insurance companies. It could be again, like integrating insurance into something else you're already doing. Right. So companies that make it easier to help start other fintech companies, that's basically infrastructure. Yep. And we have, Plat, like what are the other companies, the infrastructure space that you're excited about or specific things that you want to see people build? Yeah. So, so Plaid and Stripe are examples of that, that have, that have already had a lot of success. Again, in the banking and, and, and insurance side, we haven't seen as much in banking. There's a company called Synapse, Synapseify, uh, that is in that space. Uh, I think there's probably still opportunities for others. Um, in insurance, we haven't really seen anything. Yeah. And when you mentioned Vanguard's been doing a good job, Jake, uh, are you from, uh, relative to startups, is that relative to the robo-advisors? Yeah, because effectively like a target retirement fund from Vanguard is exactly the same thing as a robo-advisor. And you cut the fee on that to zero and you don't need a robo-advisor anymore. So, <laughs> Right. So all the, all these consumer fintech apps, they're basically trying to compete to be made. What's, what's the ultimate prize there? To be your bank? Um, I wouldn't say it's to be your bank. I would say it's to be your primarily primary financial relationship. So... It, they don't necessarily need to be your bank to be your primary financial relationship. If and the value accrues to the person, the, the company that has the customer relationship. Right. So if it's the thing that's on your home screen and what you use to interact with, with for payments and lending yeah. and all these things, then it effectively is your bank, but it doesn't have to actually be your bank. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, one way to think about that is. Uh, yeah, what we used to talk about at NerdWall was kind of like the, the life cycle of financial decisions. So, you know, if, if you're if you can win a customer by refinancing their student loans or by being their first 401k provider or something like that, right when they graduate from college, then when it comes time for them to get an auto loan, who are they going to call first? Uh, like they get married, they buy a house, they are looking for a mortgage, they're looking for homeowner's insurance, like who are they going to call first? They have a child, now they need life insurance, uh, you know, various other things. And it just goes on like this forever and then eventually there's retirement and so on. So whoever can figure out a way to build that brand and kind of maintain as much of that life cycle as possible uh, will have a huge advantage. Now, the counter to that is thanks to companies like NerdWallet and Credit Karma and various other kind of comparison companies and a lot of these PFMs, frankly, uh, it's still TBD on how valuable that brand is going to stay over time. Because like if if I'm going to go shop for a mortgage every time, uh, I guess like just because you, I already have a relationship with you with some other product doesn't mean that I'm not going to go compare rates online when it comes time for me to get an auto loan or a mortgage or something. It doesn't mean I'm going to go compare. I'm not going to go compare prices when it's time for me to buy insurance on any of these things. And so whoever has the best price could just end up winning regardless of what the brand is. It's interesting. Like this is again, like repeating history where like 40, 50 years ago, you used to just go to your, like your closest bank branch and like, that's where you'd bank. And that's where you do all your financial products. And then we started to get direct mail and then like somebody else would be targeting you for some other product. Like you get your mortgage somewhere else because you got targeted direct mail. Then, you know, lending tree came along and you could like shop it out. The nerd wallet came along and you could get a much more precise product. But like now, if you're looking for a CD rate, like if you're, if you're looking to hold money in a certificate of deposit, 
you would just go to NerdWallet and like, I think something like 85% of the people click on the top link or something like that. Yeah, presumably. I don't know the actual numbers, but that's what and happens like, with Google. So. And like you would, you basically just go to the highest offer and like that's where you choose to put your money. You, now, like the internet has allowed for information for, so people are comparison, comparison shopping in a way that they weren't before. So I think brands still matter, but they probably matter less than they used to. Yeah, totally. If you run through all the categories besides certain elements of insurance and infrastructure, you guys are kind of bearish. Would you say you're bearish in most of FinTech right now? No. <laughs> but where you're excited, you're really excited? Or where else are you excited? So we have this idea that you know everything is FinTech. So I think so. it's not that we're bearish. It's more that we think that the distribution models of financial services are going to look very different over the next 10 years. And so it's not going to be build a bank, throw it on an app, and pay for a bunch of Facebook ads. It's going to be start a ride-sharing company and create bank accounts, credit cards, and stuff like that for your drivers. We think that there's going to be a lot more opportunities like that. I mean, one of my favorites, actually, I was just touching on it, is in the insurance space, actually, is uh, you know what Tesla is trying to do with, with their own auto insurance. This is an area where the, you know they have their... their they're not an insurance company. They are a tech company. They are a car manufacturer. But by rolling out auto insurance, they already have kind of a captive audience of people that drive their cars and are more likely to buy their auto insurance without them having to go advertise it. They have data on you that no other auto insurer has because they know everything about your car. They know everything about you. You know, They're probably tracking you down to the microsecond when you're driving that car. And... Um, presumably they can use that data to underwrite you cheaper than anybody else can. But then I think where it gets really interesting, this is kind of one of my thought experiments about the everything is FinTech model and how this could play out in the future and how we can make financial products look very different than anything that we've seen in the past. Tesla also runs its own dealerships, its own service centers. It has its own network of tow trucks, all this other stuff, right? So eventually you buy a Tesla. They don't even ask you if you have auto insurance. It just comes with the price of the car. They just bake it right in. And then if anything happens to your car, and I don't know if they're actually going to do this, but I think this would be really cool. If something happens to your car, all you do is you pull up to the service center, you drop your car off, they give you a loaner, come back a few days later and swap them back out. Or maybe eventually you get to a point where it's like an iPhone with Apple Care, and you just, you're renting, you know, you're kind of paying like a subscription fee for your Tesla month over month. And if something happens to it, you go drop it off at the service center. They just give you a new one. <laughs> you know that because it's all in software they've loaded all your settings onto the new one and you just drive off of that car and you never have to think about it so then the concept of auto insurance just isn't even a thing for you anymore like you never even think about it you never say the words auto insurance yeah. so like how can technology and other technology products do the same thing for other financial products like how can we change those distribution models and just the whole mental model of what financial products are um, and how we kind of live our financial lives going forward I think that's where that's where we're definitely not bearish. Yeah. So you gave you ride sharing as one example. What, what you gave Casper earlier. What are other examples of companies that I wouldn't think as fintech companies, but now could be, or even subspaces? You know, ride sharing being one of them, for example. Well, you know, we touched a little bit earlier about kind of WeChat and how it's like the app to rule them all in China, right? And it has payments and lending and all this other stuff built right into it. Well, if you look at what Apple's doing with their ecosystem, it's starting to feel a little bit the same way. Like instead of it being an app that all of your apps are in, the app is iOS. But you have Apple Pay built into it. Like I had an experience recently. So I'm a fintech investor. So naturally, I went out and signed up for the Apple card as soon as it came out. But I found myself using it a lot 
because it's just so easy to go and you do your Apple Pay. And instead of using any of my other credit cards, I've just defaulted to using the Apple card. Even though technically maybe I would earn like one percentage point difference or something using a different card, it just doesn't even occur to me. I just use the Apple card. So then on top of that, every you accrue those rewards in Apple Cash that goes directly on into your Apple Cash account on your phone. So then go out to drinks with somebody and you're like, oh, you know, I'll quote unquote Venmo you, but I pull out my phone, I just text you the money with Apple Cash and uh, it just comes right out of my Apple Cash balance. And so I realized this recently where like they never actually charged me any money because I already had a balance in Apple Cash that I wasn't even paying attention to <laughs> and the payment came right out of that. And so they're kind of creating this frictionless uh, payments ecosystem within iOS through the Apple Card and through Apple Cash and you can start seeing that getting built into like all of their products effectively. And it becomes starts to look a lot like WeChat, like micropayments become possible the way that WeChat enabled them. Yeah. That's interesting. Let's talk more about incumbents. You mentioned Apple, you know, if we're back on this podcast, you know, three years, five years from now, what incumbent do you think has made the most progress? Um, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, who's sort of done most in FinTech. Right now, it looks like Apple is really doing a great job. I mean, I think the, the Rulado's Apple card was incredible. They did such a good job at it with Goldman. Yeah. It's it's a really good product. Yeah, Aaron Frank should pat himself on the back. Yeah. He's in his, this building. And his team. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah they, they've done a really good job with it. Um, I think uh, there are certainly opportunities that Facebook has. WhatsApp is a beast in the developing world in particular. And can can have WeChat like characteristics. They're doing some tests in India right now. Um, I'm surprised it's taken them so long. I actually am also. I'm really surprised it's taken them so long. Also, like they have so much opportunity in front of them. Like in the developing world, with Instagram too. Like Instagram, so many people are using Instagram to sell things, but they have this like complicated thing where you see an ad on Instagram or like a you're following something and you want to buy something. You have to go to another app. Like Instagram should just be, have a buy now button where yeah. like you can sell things on Instagram. I think, but but Facebook has a tremendous opportunity. Just they have so many users. Yeah, Facebook they've stumbled Instagram. a lot with this though. Yeah, yeah. same thing with Google. Like Google's, Google's really stumbled a lot with this. They've, they've tried so many times and uh, have not been successful. And frankly, the idea of having a Google checking account kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> Much more so than Apple. Like if Apple would roll out a checking account, I might consider it. With Google, it was like an immediate mm, yeah. no. <laughs> what about Facebook or Amazon? I think Facebook, probably in the developing world, has a has a better shot than than here. Obviously, we can talk about people down in Congress here. <laughs> yeah, for the foreseeable future. Um, also, like there's a there's a negative perception here that isn't there as much in the, in the developing world. And is Libra the mechanism by which they figure out payments? You know, if Libra works, I think there it's great. But I think. Libra is probably a long way away from from being real, and I guess Calibra is probably more like Facebook's thing. And there's a lot of regulatory challenges before right. they get there. I don't I don't know if it's going to get there to be honest. Yeah. If you look back in the last decade, what have been the biggest startup winners? Has been you know obviously before you know Square and Stripe, but then Robinhood, Coinbase. What are the sort of you know, plaid what are unicorns in fintech space those uh credit karma yeah. internationally there's the neobanks revolut right. and 26 and monzo and new bank yeah 
I thought there'd be more. There aren't. What's interesting is um, the majority of them are B2C yeah. at this moment. I think that there are more B2B ones coming up. Um, like what kinds? All sorts of stuff, like random like workflow tools uh-huh. selling into large incumbents will be successful. Uh, there are a lot of companies that like aren't necessarily household names, but are, are having success. A lot of those companies are, uh, I guess, Stripe and Adyen are payments ones that are B2B and not household names. The other ones tend to be household names in, the, in wherever wherever they operate and have have done something that led to some distribution advantage. So like Robinhood really was the first that marketed like yeah. no fee trading credit karma gave you free credit reports and that was a huge that was a huge win for them the neo banks just like caught a, a great moment in time in which a large portion of like this sort of millennial user base after the financial crisis was fed up with traditional banks like wanted a great user experience and these guys stepped in and offered one yeah what did people miss about Plaid? I understand, you know, a bunch of people passed on it or didn't see it coming. Yeah, I mean, Plaid's been around for a long time. So, like, knowing the, I can't say I was super close to the history there, but one of the things I do remember was people being concerned that the banks just weren't going to allow it. Like, yeah. initially, Plaid, kind of very similar to Yodley, was more or less screen scraping bank accounts. And, you know, the, the argument, <laughs> we hear this argument with one of our own portfolio companies from everybody even today is, what happens if the bank shuts you off, right? You know, you have that kind of single point of failure, existential risk. But uh, Plaid figured it out. They managed to hit enough scale that they've actually have started to partner more and more of those banks instead of uh, instead of just kind of going against their terms of service and getting the data themselves. And it's allowed them to expand it to very, various other products and different types of data. And they've become a, a pretty interesting data platform for financial services. Say more about like what's the plaid today that people are missing. That is a fascinating infrastructure company that will enable a bunch of other use cases or, or companies to build on top of. Like what's a either that exists or that you want to exist. First of all, for people who don't know, plaid is if you sign up for a like any finance app, for the most part, plaid is what what they're using. So you enter your username and password for your banking information. Plaid gives that to a third party securely. So a lot of their early use cases were these PFMs that we talked about earlier, personal finance managers. But actually, all these use cases came about that that we didn't necessarily know about. So like you could, so lenders used it to get access to your back catalog of uh, of, of payment history and and debt to income, debt to income, all this kind of stuff. Um, You used to when you were signing up for an app that wanted your. ACH information you used to have to get these like two deposits and you have to enter that number in. But now with Plaid, you don't have to because they can instantly validate your account. Yeah. So things like that, a lot of use cases that Plaid didn't initially set out to solve have been solved by Plaid, yeah. which is pretty interesting. What did Chime figure out? Well, Chime, I think, was one of the first that nailed what she was just talking about with the, uh, the millennials hating their banks. Yeah. And... Uh, they were able to build a nice brand around that. And I think, you know, Chime probably started, what, 2012, 13, something in that time? Yeah. Right? And I think Simple started before them. 
and was just too early. Yeah. Like they, they were just too early for that to get that. And it was like the shift before mobile. Right. And I think mobile changed things. And I think if you look at like this group of people, like probably our age, roughly, or probably younger than, younger than us a little bit, growing up digitally native, like the first thing you do is like communicate with people. You like play games and like, the evolution of what this group of people that's growing up does is yeah. now like moving into finance. Right. Yeah. One of the things that happened with the, with the financial crisis was kind of banks shifting their fee structures around and stuff like that as well. And especially if you keep a low balance or no balance, you typically get hammered by your bank. Um, especially if you're using one of the big banks rather than like a credit union or something. Uh, so that was one of the things that Chime figured out was, you know, we're not going to charge those fees. So that really resonated with that audience as well. And then get paid two days early. So like your payday is today. You usually have to wait two days, two ACH days or yeah. what have you uh, with a lot of employers and things like that. So uh, Chime basically fronted you your paycheck a couple yeah. of days early. And I think getting paid today is a, uh, I think that is a business model that will never get old <laughs> if you can figure out how to do it right. Yeah. I'll leave you with two last uh, last questions and we'll wrap. So one is, um, what is your you know, request for startups, for things we haven't yet discussed? I know you guys are thinking about incubating some ideas, things that you think people should be working on, experimenting with. Uh, and two is if we're back on this podcast, you know, 2025, five years from now, how do you think this podcast would be different? Like, how, how do you think, what, what, how is the space going to change and evolve in terms of what companies, you know, your fund three, you know, thesis will, will be? So there are a lot of companies we want to see one of the things I think about a lot is just startup equity and a couple things like one, I want to be able to invest in any company at any time. Yeah. And so I've thought about that a little bit. Liquid private markets. Yeah. Liquid private markets. I, I also uh, think it's, it's really weird how like you're uh, if you're an employee of a company and you leave, you have to exercise your options. Like there, there's a, there's a broken market there that, that somebody could fix. So that's, one yeah. one thing I've been thinking about. I also, you know, Matt Levine talks a lot about private markets or the new public markets, and I think that's a trend we will probably see continue. And so, one of the areas where I think, you know, I don't know if this is a startup or just a trend or what have you. One of the areas where I'd like to see a lot more development is uh, right now in Silicon Valley, the way that we fund companies is not particularly creative. Like everything gets funded with primary preferred equity. You know, there's venture debt and stuff like that, but it's all just kind of offshoots of the venture community and the way that the venture community funds companies. And so I would like, meanwhile, public companies have access to all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Various types of funding mechanisms, some like debt mechanisms, equity mechanisms, some combination of the two packaged in the same product, all sorts of derivatives and swaps and what have you. Uh, I would like to see the private markets mature a little bit along those lines as well, to where we can find ways to fund companies that don't just involve dilutive preferred equity. And I think, uh, you know, ClearBank is a company where I'm an investor that's doing some of this, where especially for e-commerce companies, you know, you have some amount of money that should go to R&D and like, sure, that's that should be financed with equity. But then you have some amount of money that's just Facebook and Google ads and you're earning a revenue stream on that. No public company would fund that with equity. Like yeah. that's, that's very obviously a, a debt investment. And so ClearBank is trying to help e-commerce companies especially do stuff like that. So like, can we apply a similar model to all kinds of different tech companies. Can we do that with SaaS? Like kind of what lighter banks doing, but let's scale it up. Or can we do that with FinTech? I think that would be really interesting. Cause we, we do have a thing, uh, I guess, uh, 
an issue here in Silicon Valley where a lot of times valuations are kind of the tail wagging the dog yeah. where it's, you know, you need to spend a hundred million dollars on Facebook and Google ads. So you're going to go out and raise a hundred million dollars and that drives your valuation up to some level that is going to take you a decade to grow into. Uh, I think if we could find other ways to finance some of these things, I think it would yeah. minimize some of that mitigate, I should say some of that. I, I still think um, real estate, yeah. like the process of buying a home is, is terrible and, yeah. and broken. And I think that uh, there's plenty of opportunity to solve even small pieces of that process and, yeah. and have a pretty big market. Yeah. In terms of new ways of, of uh, financing, Jake, we didn't get into it, but maybe crypto or income share agreements can enable new ways of, of financing. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, we definitely saw a lot of financing get done in 2017 around crypto. Um, it's not clear what we were financing, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe there is a, a world yes. in the future where we have, uh, yeah. Yeah. Any 2025 hot take in terms of how the ecosystem will evolve or be fundamentally different in terms of building a fintech company? I, I think that there'll be a lot of things like uh, as it gets easier to start a fintech company, there'll be just so many things that evolve from that that I can't really predict right now. But like in the same way we talked about Plaid, how like yeah. it enabled a bunch of other things to exist. I think the same will be true of these new crop of fintech companies. Right. Yeah, I'm hoping we have like a kind of an internet moment here. I don't know how else, a dot-com moment. We're like, you know, when the dot-com thing started 20 years ago, it was all very much, let's take what we already know and love and just throw it on the internet. Let's put a bookstore on the internet, a pet store on the internet, the yellow pages on the internet, whatever. Uh, now here we are 20 years later, we have apps on a phone in our pocket that don't look like anything we ever could have predicted 20 years ago. I think we're kind of going through something similar in fintech now where, Similarly, we have infrastructure popping up and enabling technologies that should conceivably compound on each other in a way that we can't really predict uh, to the point where the types of products we are building on top of this new fintech stack 10, 20 years from now doesn't look like anything we could have guessed today. Like I would just love a world where financial products just don't look like what we've come to expect out of financial products. You know, Kind of the idea we were just talking about with, with Tesla. I'd love to see like all of financial services kind of go that way. Um, I guess today I've been Sheil Manat and Jake Gibson. If you're a fintech company, you want them on your cap table. I, I know I do if I'm investing in it. Uh, guys, thank you for, for coming on. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for the time. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 